And I think like just sort of like reframing the way we think about this is a really key first step. We can't ever make progress on this if we just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, they weren't in a crosswalk, so it's their fault. <laughs> you know, we have to get past that before we can, we can make any progress. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. This is episode number 45, and it features Angie Schmidt, who has been promoting her important new book, Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America which sheds light on the disturbing increase over the past decade of preventable traffic violence impacting the most vulnerable users of our streets. It also provides some hopeful stories of community members coming together to reverse this devastating trend. But before we make our way into this discussion, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors and monthly patrons from our Patreon page. Thank you all so much for helping out in any way that you can. I really do appreciate whatever contributions you're able to provide. I simply can't do this without your support. To learn more about how you too can make a huge difference in helping me produce this content, please head over to our website at activetowns.org and hit on that donate button in the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, I've also included a link in the show notes. And one last thing before we get started, I just wanted to mention our new YouTube video podcast channel that I launched with episode number 44, a conversation with Ryan Van Duzer about bikepacking and his life of adventure. Please check it out if you haven't watched it yet. I think you'll really enjoy the format. My goal is to feature video episodes when the guest and or topic is particularly conducive to a more visual format. And I do have another exciting video episode in the editing bay right now, so stay tuned for that. Okay, time to get this critical conversation about creating safer places for people rolling. I'm honored to have Angie Schmidt joining me here remotely on our virtual Active Towns podcast studios. Uh, Angie is the author of Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America, which was recently published by Island Press. Angie, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Well, hey, first off, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time to chat with me here today. I know you've been so incredibly busy. You've been on a whirlwind virtual book tour all over the country, probably all over the world. And it's been a few weeks since the book has been released. How are you holding up? Uh, it's funny you bring that up. <laughs> I have a son who's in online kindergarten. And so trying to manage it all has been a lot, but it is, it's been really fun for me, even though obviously it's a very sad topic, just sort of, I don't know. I, I really do like discussing it. And, um, I've, I've done some talks like yesterday, I did a talk with three people who are like sort of my heroes. Um, so it, it's been a lot, but it's been fun. 
Fantastic. Well, now you've piqued my interest. Who are, who are those three people? So one of them in particular is this guy that's in my book. His name's Jorge Canes. And he's a guy from Mexico City. And he plays this character, Piotonito, which is Spanish for pedestrian, basically. And he dresses up in Lucha Libre costume. And he does these like, it's sort of like performance art in Mexico City to raise awareness about this problem and to try to remind people of the rights of pedestrians, he calls it, which is a better, I've been calling it the pedestrian safety crisis. But we did this um, webinar yesterday, and he said it's the pedestrian revolution. He's really great to hear speak. So Fantastic. And, and, and I love him as well. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I will actually in the show notes, I'll be sure to uh, have some links to some profiles that have been done on him. Um, I've run into him before at at some of the conferences that that we used to all be able to attend yeah. <laughs> on occasion. So, you know, I'm thinking a fair number of the listeners to this podcast probably know you from some of your previous work that you you did with uh, Streets Blog USA. But I don't want to make too many assumptions because about 25% of my audience is international. Uh, so why don't we do this? Why don't we start off by having you tell just a little bit about your background? You sort of alluded to it and then bring us around to what really compelled you to write this book. Um, yeah. So for about nine years, I, I worked at this organization called Streets Blog, which is based in New York City. But I was doing reporting all around the country about uh, progressive transportation reform. And our mission was to sort of promote better conditions for walking, um, biking and transit. And I really, nine years is a long time to be on a beat. So I just developed a lot of knowledge. And during, during sort of the later end of that, there started to be this phenomenon happening where there was a big increase in pedestrian deaths. A lot of people were sort of puzzled by it. And now we sort of better understand the causes. And that's what the book was about. But I, I thought it was an underreported, underappreciated topic. Because about 10 times as many pedestrians are killed every year in the United States as cyclists. And I just think it, the, whole, the nature of the problem, it, it's very unjust. So I thought maybe if I wrote a book, and I started writing the book, I'm a mom of two young kids. I started writing the book when my daughter was, I had a baby, basically. And after they went to bed, I started working on it. That was about two years ago. Yeah. So what was that transition like? you know, as, as a journalist to now honing in and focusing in on writing a book, because before you were able to skip, you know, you were in a genre, but you were able to skip from story to story to story. Now you're like really diving deep. Yeah. Well, it, it worked out kind of well because I was able to just draw on all this reporting I've been doing over the years. And a lot of times I would just know where to go for the source because I'd read about different issues before. So it, it actually came together pretty quickly. And I think it, it worked pretty well as a topic for a book. And I, I like being focused on this one thing now. A lot of times people ask me about stuff and it's just something I don't know. And I'd rather, if I don't know it, I'd rather hand it off to someone who knows better. Right. Yeah. Let's dive into the book itself. And it's, as you mentioned, you alluded to it earlier, it's not exactly a very happy, cheery subject. But for the listeners who may be hearing about this book for the very first time, give us your summary. What's it, what's it all about? Yeah, so basically, there's been about a 50% increase in pedestrian deaths in the United States in the last roughly a decade. And the book tries to explain why that's happening. 
Uh, I think a lot of people, when this started happening, they would sort of theorize about it. And they always thought, you know, it has to be one thing. And like the common, the most common theory is that it was cell phones, um, the smartphones. And, and that may be part of it. It's sort of, we don't have the best data about that. But there's definitely some, there's some other things that we definitely know that are contributing. And one of them is there's been a big change in the vehicle mix in the United States. Americans are buying a lot more SUVs and pickups have gotten really enormous. There's really strong scientific data that shows pedestrians, if they're hit by an SUV, are two and a half to three times more likely to be killed than if they're hit by a sedan. During the last decade, there was this major, major shift from a time when Americans, 75% of the vehicles they were purchasing were sedans, to now where it's effectively flipped. And only about 25% of the vehicles being purchased um, in the last year, model year, were sedans. So that's happening, but there's other there's other demographic sort of shifts also that are putting people at risk. Um, the American population is aging, and older folks have always been pretty vulnerable to these kind of crashes. Another thing that's going on is we have migration to the Sun Belt, which is a long it's a long term trend. But the Sun Belt is the most dangerous region in the United States to walk. And in addition, we we have. Another thing going on that's bad news for this issue is the suburbanization of poverty. So we have a lot more folks now who may need to depend on walking or transit on occasion, living in environments that are very hostile to pedestrians. So to summarize, there's sort of a couple a couple different things, but we have more people who are more vulnerable in more dangerous places, and the vehicles on the road are more dangerous when they are hit. In the title, Silent Epidemic, uh, reminds me that we have a general lack of understanding just, you know, societally with the fact that there are so many traffic fatalities, period. You know, in in 1972, we had our peak of 56,000 motor vehicle deaths. And it's it's come down significantly from that peak, but we are inching back up a little bit, and we're you know right around about forty thousand uh, per year, essentially like the size of an airplane crashing every single day, day after day. There is probably a lack of awareness, and or there's a level of acceptance with that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah, what are you thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I started writing this, I I actually toyed with just writing about traffic deaths in general, but decided to focus. The nature of pedestrian deaths is a little bit different. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's really a shame because we could do so much better. One thing I say in my book is, and that I'm always returning to, is Canada, right? Canada does about twice as well as us on a per capita basis as far as traffic safety. So if we could do as well as Canada, we would save like 20,000 people's lives a year. And there, I mean, Canada is not that much different from us, right? They, they right. just take this stuff a little more seriously. They have a little better transit. I think their street design is a little bit more progressive, but it's not um, Amsterdam, right? And, you know, if we could do as well as the, like the real leaders are in Western Europe, some of these Scandinavian countries, we could save about 30,000 lives a year. So the United States is kind of an outlier compared to the rest of the wealthy world. And we're, we're out of compliance with a lot of the best practices that are um, recommended by the World Health Organization. And we're behind even countries that are 
more middle income like Mexico and India and China on a lot of basic safety issues like uh, our seatbelt policies, our speeding policies, um, drunk driving. So you mentioned drunk drunk driving and of course, uh, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, you know, really sort of, uh, I can't remember when, what era that was, whether it was the 70s or the 80s that re- really grew. Was it the 80s? Yeah, it was the 80s. And that did a great job of really bringing the awareness level about a specific subset of uh, traffic violence, which is, you know, drunk driving uh, traffic violence. But it just, it, it's always baffled me that that there is just such a lack of awareness. Now we talked earlier about just the, the, the total number of fatalities, you know, through traffic crashes and traffic violence, you know, has come down significantly from the peak in, in the, the really the bad days of, of the 1970s, because it was a, a meteoric rise. And there were a lot of safety standards, a lot of improvements that were made, uh, including seatbelt, you know, mandatory seatbelts and, eventually airbags and and anti-lock brakes and other types of things that have caused a shift in the mix. And I think that's kind of the point that you're getting to is that not only do we have the uh, a misunderstanding or a lack of appreciation that there's a large number of people who are leaving, losing their lives every single year, and we're just talking about fatalities. I mean, let's open the can of worms of serious injuries and debilitating injuries. Literally millions of people are, are experiencing that thousands of people each day are, are being impacted by serious life altering injuries due to motor vehicle crashes. Now, so what's happened is the occupants of these massive vehicles and these safety improved vehicles their fatality rate has gone down. And what you're really saying is that we're seeing that uptick in fatality rate of the more vulnerable users, the people who are out in our communities, on our streets, who are walking, biking, maybe in wheelchairs, maybe, you know, doing a short trip, maybe not their primary mode of, of mobility, but maybe they're just, have just gotten off of a bus. So in your studies, I mean, what's really what you've, come to understand as to why there's such that, uh, a disconnect for folks with the with what this is you know this this epidemic that we have yeah we just really haven't we haven't obviously we haven't catered to pedestrians and cyclists much um, at multiple levels you know at all the regulatory levels it's really been much more about catering to drivers so the street design is a big problem we still have the engineers throughout the profession and the um, official engineering guidance is still overwhelmingly motivated towards reducing trip times, reducing vehicle delay compared to promoting safety, especially for vulnerable folks. So that's part of the problem. Um, Vehicle regulations, like you touched on, have pretty much ignored pedestrians. There's, There's hundreds of pages related to Safety for drivers and passengers, but in the United States, we have never really taken on pedestrian safety with vehicles. And there's a there's a famous he he died, but a famous um, auto safety expert, Clarence Dit, Ditlow, I believe. Sorry, <laughs> lots of double check that on his last name, but he he said it was sort of the last frontier, pedestrian safety and auto safety, and that. 
car makers are really resistant to it because it affects the appearance, especially the appearance of the front end of cars. Right now, the front end of cars looking really mean, like it will kill you, is the very fashionable thing they make a lot of money and can charge extra for. So there's a little bit of some, some tension there. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, uh, the rate of, of fatality that we're seeing um, within pedestrians is increasing. And that's what we're, we're, we're really talking about here. And the, the sheer number is, is upsetting for sure. Uh, but hey, there's a false sense of security out there, the motor vehicle drivers and the occupants of these motor vehicles, because they're still the vast majority of the number of fatalities and serious injuries that are happening. And a big part of that is because there is that false sense of security because of all the safety mechanisms that are you know, in place and because they're driving these large vehicles. And uh, when we look at actual fatality rates of children, it's guess what? They're usually occupants of vehicles. And so that's a huge thing where, again, there's just this cognitive disconnect to the, the data. And that's un, uh, you know, really uh, upsetting that it's out there. Yeah, I think like it is remarkable how safe we have made vehicles. The problem is we just drive so much, right? It's like if we, a lot of the safety gains from these kind of technologies have sort of been eaten up by automakers, you know, um, the sort of sprawl industrial complex has managed to increase the amount of miles we're driving pretty consistently since the 70s. So if we had... And we're not providing alternatives. Well, let's and let's get to the the crux of it. Is it ultimately when we talk about serious injuries and fatalities, it's about speed. And so when we have a situation where we have a false sense of security as a driver, and our landscape has their built environment is such that encourages us to drive faster, and our destinations are pretty far apart. What do we do? We drive faster. Right. It's human nature. Right. And I think that we have a, like a very permissive sort of culture. We're at, who knows if this will change, but right now I think we're having a very permissive cultural moment about it, right? Like I know that they, they used to do some campaigns and, you know, speed kills. And I think people, it's not really in vogue right now, right? And people don't take it seriously. Yeah. Well, speaking of campaigns, I'm wearing a shirt that says it could be me. And this is hashtag it could be me. And this is a, a an initiative that was started by a friend of mine and previous guest on the Active Towns podcast. And it's it's all about trying to increase awareness of folks that of our vulnerability as pedestrians and people out on bikes, out yeah. on our streets. And really what it's, it is intended to do, and, and Trini Willerton is, is the person who founded this organization, it was really all about creating a short little video clip that could be shared out in their personal social media feeds that say you know, to their friends and family, hey, please be careful every time you get you know, behind the, the wheel of a motor vehicle it could be me out there that you come across if you are driving too fast or get distracted or or whatever. And in her case, she was training for an event and and got hit by a distracted driver and you know was nearly killed. Uh, it's happened to me <laughs> two days after after nine eleven. Uh, you know, I was hit you know by a distracted driver in an intersection and was lucky to live. So, but this isn't really about the shock and awe of all of this as a human 
a behavior specialist and a health promotion uh, professional, I know that we need to be able to provide opportunities to tell stories of change. And you have several stories in the book and several instances in the book of where community groups and individuals who have been affected by traffic violence, just like Trini was, have come together to create some organizations. Talk about some of those those organizations and those groups uh, that have been formed and how they're starting to make a difference in their communities now. Yeah. So one thing I write about a little bit is this group called Families for Safe Streets. And they're sort of one of the heroes in the book. And there was a woman named Amy Cohen that I write a lot about. She's a New York City mother. Uh, her son, um, Sammy, who was 12 years old, was struck and killed by a truck driver in Brooklyn in 2014, I believe is the year. And so I think that happens to so many people in the United States. Almost every family probably has been affected by a traffic crash at some point. But I don't think most people are able to sort of view it in political terms, right? That the, the sort of default explanation is that it you know, was fated. It was an act of God. We don't see those kind of incidents as being political, but they are. Um, we're often, political decisions are made where we know it will result in a certain number of deaths. We just don't know who it's going to be, right? So shortly after her son was killed, there's a group in New York City, bike, pedestrian, transit advocacy group, Transalt, had been doing bike lanes, had been fighting for some of these reforms, and she got linked in with them and started just telling her story. Her family would go even just weeks after her son was killed and give testimony for city council, you know, tearful testimony. This is a mom whose son was just killed. And it's been really effective. There's now, there's hundreds of families like this in New York City that are all working together. And they went down to Albany on several occasions and won legislative battles for things like speed cameras and school zones there. And it's really, it's really inspiring, I think. And I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that now they have chapters in a number of other locations around the country. And I'm sort of hopeful it could be a movement that really has an impact on the issue. Yeah. And that's, that's really the challenge, right? Is how do you get traction on a movement of increasing awareness and helping change the narrative or increase awareness that we have a problem and, and get it out of our echo chamber. And, you know, and that's what Trini tried to do with it. It could be me is trying to, you know, get people to broadcast directly into their, their personal networks uh, to try to get away, you know, because, you know, she was a, she was an athlete. She, you know, she was just training for an Ironman race, but she was very insular in that. She didn't even know about bike and pedestrian uh, advocacy groups until it happened to her. And it's, it sounds like some of this, you know, from a, a families for safer streets and, and this, this group is a, a wonderful way to try to normalize this this type of message, this type of narrative, and getting breaking out of our I'm pointing at you and me, <laughs> our sort of echo chamber of advocates and professionals that work yeah. in this area yeah. is getting into more of the general population. 
what are you've been you've been really diving deep into this and talking with people all around the country do you get a sense that we're making progress of permeating outside of our echo chambers and into the general population so that was part of my goal with this book i thought if i could write a book it'd be an opportunity when it was published to get people to sort of step back and look at it in a more like comprehensive way then it's usually sort of here someone was killed quick article and then we move on right so it's sort of hard to tell right now usa today wrote an article about the book and they just sort of summarized the points i made and they are part of a gannett uh newspaper chain so it, it went out to like 80 newspapers, I think. And it was on the front page of the Greenville News recently. I don't think that ever would have happened otherwise. So I think we can, we're reaching more people. Yeah. I don't know. I think we need like a big breakthrough moment with this. Like there has been for other movements, like the Me Too movement, you had Harvey Weinstein all of a sudden, but a lot of issues that we would just automatically recognize now as like a a social issue, like, uh, you know, activists, feminist activists have spent a long time, sort of, it was building down among activists, building this idea of like rape culture, right? Right. So that that type of thing and changing the way um, disability advocates have changed the way people, the terms people use, that, that, you know, that's still an ongoing process. But so I don't think we, we've had like a big breakthrough moment yet, but I do think sort of every, every little bit helps. Uh, we need a lot more, but all this work is, can be important in, in advancing small and big, in advancing sort of the, the vision for a safer society. After this quick break, Angie and I talk about how systemic inequities are manifesting in more dangerous neighborhood streets in historically underinvested communities of color, what impacts Vision Zero efforts are having across the country, and the story of one major European city that has dramatically reduced all traffic fatalities. But first, I have one small request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcatcher. And if you view our video podcasts, please consider rating and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Okay, that's all for this very brief intermission. Let's get right back to it with Angie Schmidt. The other aspect of the silent epidemic and the word silent re also reminds me of the invisible cyclist and the invisible pedestrian and those those folks that are out there that that's their only mode of mobility. And, and you start to get into the realm of the systemic issues that we have of underinvested communities and places that are not safe to, to walk. They may not be well lit. There may not be any infrastructure. Yeah. Maybe the only place they can walk or bike is a very, very small patch uh, along the side of a very, very high speed yeah. roadway. And so we have an entire area that, you know, kind of fits right in line with a lot of the 
the strife that we are dealing with in terms of of racism and and the redlining that took place in in years and decades past and and just an entire narrative that you know we're still living with and pardon the phrase dying with the results of those sort of inequitable and racist decisions that were made yeah it's a little bit this problem is a little bit like we see the same kind of pattern that we've seen with coronavirus where black and brown folks are disproportionately killed, but also other groups that are marginalized. Um, older folks is one, like I think I mentioned, and people with disabilities, sometimes people who use wheelchairs. So a lot of people may have like overlapping uh, marginalized identities that put them even at higher risk, low income neighborhoods. So yeah, it is, it's, it's sad. Um, this the, the sort of legacy of segregation and redlining, it continues, you know, it continues to be, there's still racist patterns and the way cities develop can really be deadly and, and it appears in all these unexpected ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to be clear, it's it's not to say that all of these tragedies are happening in in, in rural and or exurban or suburban, you know, kind of contexts. Uh, you mentioned Brooklyn. When I made the move from Boulder to Honolulu, uh, I was blown away by how hostile the environment was there in Honolulu. And Honolulu has one of the highest per capita fatality rates, especially of the elderly, you know, of any city, you know, across the uh, across mm. North America. Mm. And so we're talking about, you know, <laughs> paradise and yet it's incredibly hostile to anybody who's not inside a motor vehicle and that's that's a real shame and so that's not a situation where it's you know a quote unquote impoverished area of mm-hmm. uh, of the city although we know that the in, the rates are, are are much higher relatively speaking yeah so like there's a few different things going on so it may be that, and it's very common for black and brown neighborhoods to be overlooked for safety infrastructure, right? They might have big, wide highways or, you know, roads sort of plowed through them. Um, there's all kinds of environmental justice issues with that. But I love it when people, you know, drop in a, a word like that, strode. Explain a strode. Oh, yeah. It just means a very wide suburban road, the kind of road that's most dangerous for pedestrians. Yeah, it's a street road hybrid, the futon of transportation uh, infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it just doesn't work when you do this. And the whole point of this is that speed is incompatible with people oriented places. And so when we mix speed with people who are trying to walk and trying to bike and trying to get around a city, the, the speed of those motor vehicles just really kills the vitality and the vibrancy of the city as well as causes too many crashes and un, you know un, wreaks undue havoc on the area. Okay, let's get positive. Let's find some more you know positive things that are happening. Let's talk a little bit about uh, hopefully the momentum for turning this around. Oh, sure. So all these cities around the country now have vision zero policies, right? Probably most of your listeners would be familiar, but it's this this idea imported from Sweden, um, where it's a big sort of sea change in how 
traffic deaths are viewed. So in the United States, sort of the policy has been look at how many deaths we had last year and try to do a little bit better than that. But in Sweden, back in the 1990s, they, they decided, you know, morally, that's not okay. No amount of deaths. We're not going to plan for any deaths. And we're going to work tirelessly until deaths and serious injuries are eliminated on our streets. So one kind of cool story is, uh, I guess Sweden is no longer the leader in traffic safety and now Norway, which I mean, they're both Scandinavian countries, right? In uh, Oslo, which is the capital of Norway, there's about 700,000 people living there. 2019, they only had one death, only one traffic death in the whole city. So, and it was not a pedestrian, it was a driver. So there are places that are starting to figure this out, how to do this. The only problem is there's a lot of inequality globally and even in the United States from city to city on how much cities are doing and how big of a handle they have on this. But in 2018 or 2019, I think it was 2018, New York City has made some progress. They had the lowest number of traffic deaths in 100 years, basically since the appearance of automobiles in cities really and these are these 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 are actually really really good stories to tell because it what it really does is it it kind of counters the narrative that oh we we just can't do anything about it we just have to live with these right results of the you know these fatalities and these injuries and it's just because just like the narrative that we heard with coronavirus that you know we have to get the economy back up to speed, you know, damn the torpedoes and, and to heck with the, the, the fatalities and the, the impact on people, real lives, we need to plow forward. Well, guess what? The narrative is, is that it's, it can happen. Change can happen. And one of the biggest things that we know, we, I mentioned it earlier was speed. And I've seen quite a few cities that are pushing forward with trying to decrease the, you know, their, their speed, especially in residential areas. Boulder just passed a 20 mile per hour speed, you know, sort of hearkening to the, the English uh, 20 is plenty campaign. Any additional stories that you can think of that are, you know, kind of bubbling up out there? Well, one case I talk about a lot as a, as a success story, and that's in my book is in Detroit. So Detroit in 2014, did the survey and they found out that about 40% of their traffic lights, or I'm sorry, not traffic lights, street lights were not functioning, were broken or, you know, for some other reason weren't working. So that year they issued a $185 million bond package and they just, they said, we're going to get them all working. We're going to get this fixed. They were working with the state on that and they did. Over the next two years, they did, they got them all functioning. They replaced them with LED lights. And immediately, pedestrian deaths declined dramatically. They, there's like a 30, 35% decline in just a few years. And the deaths that, are, that were occurring in dark, unlighted conditions practically disappeared overnight. It was like they were having more than 20 deaths a year of pedestrians being killed, in, you know, walking at night in dark places. And, and now that almost never happens. So that's a big success story, especially because the pattern outside of Detroit and the rest of the United States and the rest of Michigan was a pretty dramatic increase. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when you look at the data and you look at the, the, the number of fatalities that are happening with pedestrians, you know, the number really bumps up at night. Yeah. You know, that, that lack of visibility. And it's and more often than not, it's also a, you know, 
a an at risk group and you know maybe somebody who is is walking out of necessity so what's next for you so yeah right now online kindergarten and promoting this book is taking a lot of my time but i did actually i launched a new business a couple months ago it's called 3mph planning and consulting and I want to try to do some work on the ground to try and change this, right? Uh, and one of the one of the services I want to offer is pedestrian safety audits because I think that's a good way to approach the problem. We have miles and miles of streets all throughout our cities that are unfinished. They're missing things. They're missing maybe they're missing sidewalks, maybe they're missing curb ramps, maybe they're missing crosswalks, maybe they're missing bus shelters or streetlights, but any of those things can cause a big safety breakdown that gets people killed. Uh, it, but it does depend a lot on the locality, sort of what the issues are. So that's a process, pedestrian safety audits, where you get the sort of influential people in the community together and get them to experience the street, what it's like walking on it firsthand, because I think that lack of experience is part of the issue with this. And also it taps into some of the local knowledge um, and can use that to recommend some reforms that could make a difference for people. Right. Yeah. And again, the name of that is three mile per hour uh, planning and consulting. And I just Googled it here. So you're three, the number three, three MPH. Yeah. Planning.com. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. So let's, let's uh, give uh, Angie some, uh, let's keep her really busy now that she's not writing a book and let's, uh, let's get some folks calling you up. And I love walk audits. Such a, a, a vital aspect is to get out there on the streets, especially dragging some of the politicians and some of the city leadership to get out on the street and actually get down to the nitty gritty of looking at what it feels like. And of course, one of the common tricks was to also have a, a wheelchair along for the, for the walk and put somebody into a wheelchair so that they can experience, hey, what's it like to be able to try to get around in the city and navigate the city and the infrastructure in a wheelchair? Yeah, I think my approach would be just to invite some wheelchair users to be involved. I, I like the idea of, <laughs> of the awareness to, to some of the city leadership, but, but absolutely, you have to be able to invite in those members of the community, uh, including the, the the physically disabled community, and get them, you know, out there so that they can tell it because they're going to be the experts on their streets. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. One of the positive stories that I have to bring up because it was from 2014 is uh, the story that you wrote about Lakewood, Ohio, and the school that you know had just this amazing number of kids that were walking and biking to school. And it was a school that had avoided having buses. And Clarence did a, a wonderful film on, you know, profiling that school. It's a whole district, a district. Yeah, it's okay. So Lakewood it's a whole... is a city, about 50,000 people live there, and they don't have any school buses in the city. So it's not even just one school. I mean, no, we're talking about yeah. a whole district. His video out on Vimeo is almost at half a million views for that particular video. It's always stuck with me as being an example when somebody says, well, oh, we can't do this. We can't walk or bike and have our kids be able to get to, to, to schools. You know, we have to have a massive investment in busing. You know, we're not the Netherlands. 
I always point to that article, to that, you know, to that video, it's, it's bookmarked, you know, and it's one of my resources that I go back to. Now you're in that area too, yeah. right? You're, 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 yeah. you're somewhere near there. That's, um, yeah, it's just a couple of miles from my house. I used to live there for a little while. Um, it's an inner ring suburb of Cleveland and it does have like, so Lakewood has, it's a pretty densely populated suburb. It was sort of like a streetcar suburb. So, you know, it really might not work in a <laughs> extremely sprawling suburb, right? Where the kids have to walk a longer distance. But yeah, it's cool. They, they, they planned the city. One of the key elements is that they, they planned it. So each of the elementary schools are sited in a way that no kid has to walk more than a mile. And I think that as they get older, when they, when they transition to high school and um, middle school and high school, they are expected to walk a little longer, potentially. But people in Lakewood really like that. Mm-hmm. And I do think um, for some folks with special needs, there may be a bus or two. But for, for overall, yeah, they, they don't need it. They just don't need, they don't need school buses. It is pretty cool. Yeah. And I will be sure to uh, include a link in the show notes to this particular um, article, as well as the Reitz Films profile video. It's fantastic. It really is. And it, it really reinforces that, hey, we can do this too. As you mentioned, it may, you know, may, may need to be adjusted and adapted for the realities of your particular neighborhood and your particular community. But that's that's where you get to hire, you know, Angie and and her planning and consulting uh, services and and have her help you out with that. That's all part of it. So, what's your sense as to how the pandemic has either changed or reoriented people to the streetscape? Yeah. So I think it's sort of unclear right now. I would expect like anytime there's a a recession, people usually drive less and that leads to less traffic fatalities. And in this instance in particular, with all the telecommuting and everything, there's been a real change in how much people are driving. At the same time, there is some evidence there's been a lot of speeding. And there have been a lot of people who have been trying to take advantage of outdoor recreation because we're limited in other areas. So it'll be interesting to see. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a a decline in pedestrian deaths and traffic deaths overall next year or in the next maybe even two years. But I I don't think that the pattern will be changed, the long-term pattern. Um, One thing I looked at after this happened was, are people going to start buying different kinds of vehicles, right? After the last recession, people were kind of hurting financially. They bought more sedans. Sedans are cheaper than SUVs, but it doesn't look like that's happening right now. It may actually be getting worse with the vehicle mix. So it's a little bit hard to predict, but I I don't think like the fundamental problems that were brought up in the book are going to be reversed or changed too much by what's happened. I'm hopeful that there will be an enhanced awareness that the street can be something other than what it has been. Mm -hmm. And what I sort of point to as an example of, of a potential success story along those lines is the proliferation of open streets and mm-hmm. the the number of streets, especially in densely populated urban areas yeah. that are becoming car-free zones or car light zones or low speed zones. 
So I'm hoping that that might change the relationship that we have as a society with our streetscape, which may then help to reinforce and change our relationship with what we expect when we get behind the wheel of, a, of an automobile. It will be interesting to see. I do think, yeah, I do think some of these, you know, the outdoor cafes and play streets that have popped up, some of them may be made permanent, especially in bigger cities. And I do think that's appropriate and makes sense in a lot of these bigger cities. Like a lot of European cities are moving towards at least a portion being car-free, including Oslo. So, uh, but I think, it, it, I don't know, I think it might be a little bit too limited to impact the national numbers too much. Like it's not gonna solve the problem in outer Houston or outer Phoenix where it's gotten so much worse. Yes, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's obviously our, our biggest challenge as a nation is, you know, those far-flung, you know, suburban sprawl types of environments. We know that we've seen some shift in relationship, even in those types of neighborhoods, but then it's been more at the the microscopic neighborhood level of, you know, more and more people, you know, getting out into the streets and the kids playing, quote unquote, in the cul-de-sacs. It, it, so it'll be interesting to, to see overall how, you know, this all shakes out. One of the things that you did talk about earlier, and and then you just mentioned it again, was a, a little bit of what we've seen from a car-free perspective and the safety uh, that has come out of Oslo. And of course, the the success story that is Oslo and the, the approach that the Norwegians have been taking has been many years coming. This is actually something that they've been working with and working on. And as you mentioned, the Northern European countries and the Scandinavia and also the Netherlands, they take what's called a systematic safety approach to this and, and really look at the entire network and how that network is performing and, and really try to, to do what they can to make a difference in the entire system. And that's different than the way we do it. We tend to like hone in on this is a bad intersection right here and, you know, and not really look at the entire system as, as, as an issue. Are you seeing like some opportunities for us to, you know, really start shifting now that more and more cities have kind of adopted <laughs> the Vision Zero concept uh, to really get serious about, uh, you know, heading towards a systematic safety approach? Um, I'm going to try to answer that. A lot of people think that the American cities efforts at Vision Zero have not, I don't want to say haven't been that successful, but there's been some disappointing starts in some things and a little bit of backlash like in LA where some of the projects have been reversed. I, I am I am impressed with what they're doing in some cities, at least coming from Cleveland. You know, I got to go out to Portland in the fall to give a talk actually about this book. And, you know, they have like four people doing data stuff for Vision Zero. And they have their uh, a city policy on how far apart crosswalks should be citywide. And they're evaluating their progress year after year. All the activists in Portland are not happy, right? They don't think that enough is being done. And I think that that's true. Like, I'm not discounting that at all. But it is still 
it, it is still impressive. It is still impressive what's going on in some of the bigger cities. And New York's another one. The amount of sophistication that they bring to it. And, and I, I think a lot of that local activists still feel like the pol- there's not quite the level of political will to do the big things that need to get done. Yeah. And I think part of the issue is that the heavy lift, especially when we get into some of our more far-flung suburban context, and I'm thinking of, like, say, East Portland. So you get into uh, an area of the city that is probably the most unPortland of all of the Portland neighborhoods, and it was annexed in probably 30, 40 years ago, and it just doesn't have the same infrastructure doesn't have the sidewalks. It doesn't have the bike lanes in any of the neighborhoods. And so they're taking a different approach. They're taking sort of a, a Netherlands approach to, okay, how do we create a street calmed environment and bring the, the motor vehicle, the prevailing motor vehicle speeds down and changing that sociological expectation that when we get behind the wheel of a car, we're going to be able to drive 60 miles per hour everywhere. And that's a huge lift. And that was the one thing that I thought of when Vision Zero started coming into the United States was I'm like, huh, we're going to really have to work on changing our society's approach to what it means to get behind the wheel of an automobile, which is to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. Yeah. As quickly as possible. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge behavioral shift. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it's, I don't even know how to get started with that. I think like so much of the pop culture stuff we get from car commercials and action movies is so harmful and negative and that we should really view driving as like a moral activity and um, evaluate our behavior from that standpoint, because it really can ruin someone's life or ruin your life, even if it is in, inadvertent. Like a lot of these actions can lead to some really, really terrible consequences. I, mean, I think we've just gotten away from from thinking about that. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's, it's like this this moral activity, you know, because you know, even you know, Walt Disney back in the the forties and fifties, he he did the the classic cartoon where where goofy is either mr walker or mr driver and and so this is something that we've known about our human behavior and our relationship to to motor vehicles and i'll be sure to include that link in the show notes as well because it's a it's a classic cartoon you look at that and you say oh this isn't just something that's popped up in 2020 i mean we've known this for you know decades and decades and decades that we have this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of transformation of being impatient humans when we get behind the the wheel of an automobile. And it doesn't have to be that way. When you look at the Netherlands and you look at their their systematic safety approach, 70% of all of their infrastructure for bicycles isn't even infrastructure. It's just traffic calm streets. Mm-hmm. It's residentially residential streets where somewhere between 20 and uh, 30 kilometers per hour is the quote unquote speed limit and sort of like a Hans Monderman approach of shared space for the listeners who've been uh, you know, tuning in and listening to this and they're motivated to make a difference in their community. What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I get this question all the time. So 
one thing I say is if you're not, if you don't do, if you're not the kind of person who does walking, who, who in your neighborhood, if you're not in the habit of walking out to the closest bus stop or to the store, I would encourage you to try that just to see how it feels, what it's like. And if you are the kind of person who all is already doing that, either of those, um, if you notice something that is a problem, just reach out to your city council person. And a lot of this stuff is like basic, good citizenship, civics 101 type stuff. Or if you want to do more, you can appear at the city council meeting, you can do a petition, you can get involved with, there's probably an advocacy group if you live in the city that's working on this stuff that could really use your support and help as well. And I think like just sort of like reframing the way we think about this is a really key first step. We can't ever make progress on this if we just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, they weren't in the crosswalk, so it's their fault. <laughs> you know, we have to get past that before we can we can make any progress. Yeah, and we didn't talk about that, but that's a, that's a big part of, of what we know and what we see and what you talked about in the book is that there's a lot of victim blaming that takes place. It's just clearly, they must have been doing something wrong. Yeah. It caused this to happen. So I'm glad that yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah. Angie, it's been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is great. I really appreciate all your work on this. Thank you all so very much for listening. I certainly hope you'll consider picking up your own copy of Right Away. And be sure to check out Angie's new website for her firm, Three Miles Per Hour Planning and Consulting. I've included those and many other helpful links in the show notes and on this episode's landing page at activetowns.org. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any feedback, suggestions, or questions. My email address is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. And if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help us grow our audience and this movement by telling a friend or two. Thanks once again, Angie, for joining me on the Active Towns podcast and for all that you do to create safer, more inviting, people-oriented places. Okay, that's all for episode number 45. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.